The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, science and medicine versus flim flammery, and stories in the grand space fantasy tradition. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, we bring you part one of our discussion on the new noir-tinged science fiction and fantasy anthology, No Game for Nights. DJ Butler sat down with editors Larry Correa and Casey Izell, as well as a passel of contributors to the book, specifically Griffin Barber, G. Scott Huggins, Sharon Shin, S.A. Bailey, Robert Butner, Michael Haspel, Chris Kennedy, Rob Howell, and Craig Martell. But first, the news. The September mass market paperbacks will soon be hitting bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up, we have 1637, Dr. Gribbleflots and the Soul of the Stoner by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright. Thomas, the great stoner stone, once performed miraculous surgery upon Philip Theophrastus Gribbleflots, the world's greatest alchemist, using his bare hands and no anesthesia, producing no pain and leaving no scar. It would have been wonderful if it was real. But Dr. Tom Stone, the face of modern medicine, has been engaging in fake treatments, bringing all modern medicine into question. Philip, who has learned a thing or two about actual science from those uptime elopers from Grantville, West Virginia, decides to go to Padua and turn his problems into Tom Stone's problems. Meanwhile, the wily Bernardo Ponzi has assembled a team to support his evangelical touring roadshow featuring a light show, faith healing, and yet more psychic surgery. Now Gribble Flats and Stone are on a collision course with the magnificent Ponzi, who has moved beyond showman-like fakery to causing actual harm to many people. It's time for Gribbleflots and Stone to resolve their differences, debunk one of history's greatest bunko artists, and save the reputation of modern science and medicine from ruin. Next up, we have the Sword and Planet short story anthology, edited by Christopher Rocchio, appropriately titled Sword and Planet. The distant future, like the distant past, is a place of myths, of legends, and of great heroes. Cyborg knights battle extraterrestrial demons to rescue a peaceful village. A young girl unlocks an ancient power to protect her world from off-world colonists. Here are stories not where magic is science, but with magic and science. Not knights and castles, but knights and starships. Wizards and ray guns, swords and planets. Enjoy tales from Tim Akers, Jessica Kluse, L.J. Hackmeister, Susan R. Matthews, T.C. McCarthy, Jody Lynn Nye, and Tom Toner. A new world from Warhammer 40,000K author Peter Ferravari, and a new chapter in the Sun Eater Saga from Christopher Rocchio. That's 1637, Dr. Gribbleflots and the Soul of the Stoner, and Sword and Planet both out soon in mass market paperback. 
Um, hello, uh, this is DJ uh, Dave Butler. Uh, I'm here with a, a whole passel, uh, a murder of Bane authors uh, to talk about their forthcoming, not their forthcoming, their anthology, No Game for Nights, uh, which is out, uh, out now uh, in hardcover and all your favorite ebook formats, always DRM free when you buy them from Bane, uh, of course, at Bane.com, of course. Um, welcome everybody thrilled to have you all um the uh the anthology uh is edited by by casey azell and larry korea and so i thought we'd start with you two i th that's appropriate thank you rob uh let's uh, i should uh as in announcing a conflict of interest i should tell you i'm in the anthology uh so um Let's start with you guys. Uh, why don't you two tell us about, uh, this is the second in a sort of a series of anthologies. Am I right to think that there is potentially a third one forthcoming? So, so tell us about how this came about, what the first one is, how that went, how this one differs. Sure. Um, actually, this was Casey's idea. Um, and as my mic, can you guys hear me good? Yes. Okay, because I have a directional mic, and last time I did an interview, I had it apparently facing the wrong direction. So, okay. Um, no, so originally this was Casey's idea. So she approached me, um, I want to say it was Dragon Con, I believe, and uh, cornered me at lunch. And she Liberty wanted to, yeah. Oh, Liberty Con, yeah. And she wanted to uh, pitch an idea for a noir sci-fi and fantasy anthology. And she, uh, she has this great idea. The first one was called Noir Fatale. Mm -hmm. And uh, Casey did the vast majority of the work, <laughs> uh, and it did really well. Uh, it was very successful. And then so we pitched uh, doing some more to Tony, and so we have this upcoming one called um, uh, No Game for Nights coming out next month, and a third one called Down These Mean Streets, which will be out next year. So Casey can tell you a lot more about the thought process behind this. Sure. Yeah. So. Um... I guess it all started for me. I was talking with um, Chris Smith, who's actually in the first anthology, um, No Game or um, Noir Fatale. And um, we've been chatting about, we're both big fans of the noir subgenre, both in stories and film. And um, I picked up and started reading Raymond Chandler again. And um, if you've never read Raymond Chandler, you're totally missing out. The man's gift for words is just, it's, it's intoxicating, his prose is intoxicating. Um, and so of course I read it and I was like, this is amazing. And I started writing some, and I wrote this, uh, this little noir story. But the thing that was different was that from most, from most noir stories was that this particular story that I wrote was from the perspective of the femme fatale. And I wrote it and at the time I had just had my first um, story published in, a, in, well, no, not my first, my second story published in a Bane anthology, which was um, John Ringo's um, Black Tide Rising anthology. So it was a zombie story. And I was like, man, this zombie story experience has been pretty cool. I really wish Bane would do a noir anthology. Um, and so I kind of had that idea marinating. And then I read Larry's Grim Noir, Grim noir series on the recommendation of John Ringo. And um, and that series was fantastic too. And so when I had the opportunity to meet Larry, I got actually kind of sneaky about it. Um, and the reason I remember specifically that it was LibertyCon was because we, um, Rich Groller was the 
the programming director for Liberty Con, and I reached out to him. I saw that Larry was was one of the guests that year, and I was like, hey, Rich, wouldn't it be cool if we did like a sci-fi noir panel? And I know Larry could be on it because he's got this whole grim noir series, and I would be happy to moderate it. And Rich was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So we did, and I like dressed up and did the whole like femme fatale, you know, pencil skirt and back seam stockings bit with, you know, what I wore to moderate this panel. We moderated the panel and um, it did just so happen that uh, we had a, um, like a Bain Authors luncheon af immediately after that panel. So I went from the, from the luncheon over to Larry, you know, and um, at, or went from the panel over to Larry at the lunch and was like, hey, you know, thanks for being on the panel. And he was like, oh yeah, it was great. You did a great job. I had a great time. And I was like, cool, cool. I'm so glad. So what would you think if we did a noir anthology together? I'll do all the work. You'll put your name on it. We'll spend, or we'll sell it to a bunch of people and make a bunch of money. And he was like, well, that's a good pitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's how it all kind of started with Noir Fatal. She had me a bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did my homework, Larry. I know that you're a dedicated capitalist. Uh, fantastic. So the first volume, Noir Fatale, um, has a has a, a female character on the cover, yes. uh, and uh, and given the title, was was the orientation of the first anthology more towards female perspective or female characters in these stories? Yeah, absolutely. So when we when we pitched the the idea to Tony originally, she wanted us to narrow it down a little bit more from just anything noir, right? Which makes sense. Um, and so um, Larry and I together, we kind of came up with the idea of okay, what if we focus in on this character archetype of the femme fatale? Um, and Tony loved that idea, so that's what we did. Um, and so when we, you know, when it did very well, and we started kicking around ideas for hey, that was really fun. That you know. It, it did work, you know, we, we did make some money on it. So it was like, well, let's do another one and um, let's give equal time to the guys. And so the theme of No Game for Nights is centered around the character archetype of the noir detective um, who is usually a good man, but not always a nice man, so. Okay, okay, fantastic. Um, so what's the third one then? Down These Mean Streets, is that the title? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, go ahead, Larry. I'll say on that one, we decided to go with the city as the, as the third volume. Because if you think about the, uh, uh, the whole kind of mystique, the whole aesthetic, uh, it's usually the location plays a big part of it. And so we figured femme fatale, hard-boiled detective, and then the locations these things happen in. And, you know, there's kind of a loose theme, as we've seen in, in some of these stories, you know, they, everybody hits this, these themes in entirely different directions. Yeah. Um, it's actually kind of fun because like uh, in the first one, we did Femme Fatale and, and uh, Robert Butner gave us a story, which is actually kind of a really nice love story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so it's, it's all over the board. And then we got down at the bottom, we got Big Baby Jesus, but we got Seth who has done the darkest story we've had so far in a noir anthology. But we're that's all over it. Scott, uh, Scott Huggins here gave us one that's straight up, it's comedy and it's, it's great. And, and everybody's kind of in between. We've got sci-fi, we've got fantasy, we've got um, alternate history, and they're all kind of hitting these themes from different directions. And so there's, there's so many cool different takes on this stuff. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, so I just actually read it basically cover to cover this weekend. It is delightful. Um, 
So you you were both in the story in the anthology as contributors as well as as having uh, I guess Casey did all the work. Now we know the secret. Um, well, I didn't do all the work. Larry did do Larry did do his fair share of editing. He edits my stories because you know I can't do that myself. So <laughs> well, well, let's start with you, Casey. So you and you and Griff Barber, uh, you you guys wrote a story uh, together. And, and by the way, I'll say this up front in case I don't, most of the stories are about characters who appear elsewhere. These are, these are tie-ins to other series. So what, one of the great things is reading this, you're, you're seeing, you know, 15 doorways into other story worlds. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that was really, that was a really fun, um, fun for me as, as the editor to do as well, um, uh, because, um, and I'll get to my story in a minute, but um, uh, Sharon Shin is one of our main contributors as well, or one of our contributors as well. And I've, you can I don't embarrass her. I've been a fan of hers since for a really long time. And, um, and I, so I've, I've read the shifter series that her series is, is um, connected to. And so it was really cool for me to like, be like, oh man, I get like my own private little glimpse into this, <laughs> into, the, into this world that I know and love, you know, before everyone else does. <laughs> so, so that was cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, our, uh, Griff and I wrote a story called um, Faint Hearts, um, which is a I, that was your title, right, Griff? Did you come up with that one? Yeah. Such a good title. Um, and um, it's, it's, it is a prequel story to our novel that we wrote together called uh, Second Chance Angel, which is a sci science fiction noir story um, that Griff is holding up. It still has my favorite cover Great of anything cover. I've ever written. So, cool. yeah. so tell yeah, us was... what about the sort of setting in the story here? So it, it takes place on Last Stop Station, which is the setting also for the novel. Um, but it's in the first years that uh, our uh, our knight uh, arrives on uh, on Last Stop Station. He's uh, uh, a uh, dishonorably discharged veteran from an intergalactic war where humanity's home has been uh, annihilated, and uh, he is trying struggling to make it make his life work. Uh, and he's working for. Uh, uh, relatively unscrupulous uh, alien who owns a nightclub and uh, a, uh, a race of uh, uh, nightclub goers, uh, the, one of the uh, partiers uh, goes missing and uh, the club owner is concerned that this will reflect poorly on him and his business. So he asks for the participation of, a, uh, uh, of the investigation by uh, our hero, Muck. His very name is not quite heroic. <laughs> it's, it's so archetypal, right? I mean, so he's he's basically he's a, he's kind of a knight, but he's a knight with some shade cast on him, right? Yeah. And it's kind of this question: Is he still going to be a knight? Can he still be knightly, even though he's living in a pretty fallen world, pretty scummy kind of place, right? Yeah. Uh, try, trying to make a living as a, like a person of violence, where you got a personal code without the institution to support you. Uh, I, I love that his name is uh, Muck. Um, uh, fa fantastic, uh, very gritty, a lot of fun. Um, now, uh, Casey's tagged a few other people and opened some doors from here. I feel like I'm playing Hollywood Squares. So uh, Scott Huggins, you wrote a story about a veterinarian. Yes. What are you thinking? Well, um, it's like... One of the questions that that's always fascinated me is if if we assume that say Sauron 
has has won the war and and brought the lands under his dark sway who has to actually do the jobs so um these these are my characters um uh, oh shoot no I yeah it's hard with the background hold it right in front uh, of me i blurred the background and i've screwed everything up okay um let's not do that so go. these are my characters um dr james DeGrand and his assistant harriet templin and uh and they are so this is the james and harriet series and uh he is the enslaved veterinarian of the evil dark lord that has conquered everything and uh he must now keep the dragons unblocked and uh and uh make sure that all the creepy crawly creatures are healthy enough to do horrible things to everybody else so um the story i wrote is about when james has been actually promoted and now he has to survive um the bureaucracy of the dark lord which is just as unpleasant as it sounds um but this book is sort of the introduction to the adventures of james and harriet how they met and and what brought them to so so the the story in the anthology happens pretty much right after this this novel concludes so it's sort of uh post lord of the rings meets hp lovecraft and all creatures great and small that's kind of like the, the yeah i i think that's a great way of putting it absolutely so uh so is is uh, is your veterinarian is, is he like is he how does he survive the bureaucracy is he like a knight with a code is he keeping his head uh, yeah. down he, well a little of both he he keeps his head down when he can but you know when when push comes to shove he will he he will stick his neck out for for the downtrodden um and and he does have an opportunity to do that uh in the story when he discovers that the uh the servants of uh, uh of one of these bureaucrats may live or die depending on how he behaves and he ends up he ends up investigating a murder he is not a detective uh but but he finds himself all of a sudden cast in a specific situation where he must function as one yeah just a real quick note dave you need to be his pitch man because that <laughs> pitch right there was just perfect like that was a, that was an excellent pitch I've got it was. yeah it's a fun book i think I, I it's possible my blurb is on that book um uh yes it says hilarious veterinary horror like pratchett would write so it's 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 right here on the back yeah, yeah the first blurb so, um and thank you very much for bl for blurbing it yeah you are very welcome. Uh, fantastic, uh, Sharon. So we already we 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 you're one of our main contributors. I heard Casey say that before she tried to retract it. You're one of our main contributors. Uh, so uh, tell us about your your shifter series and and give us a little uh, taste of what the story is about. Mm, the shifter series. It's called the Shifting Circle, and there's three books, and it's basically. It's sort of urban fantasy. It's, you know, the regular world, except there are people who can shapeshift. But my shapeshifters lead 
a fairly grim existence. They, they don't live very long and they are all kind of afraid of being hunted by the government. So they aren't the, the ones you see in a lot of urban fantasy where they're, you know, they're going out and, and having superpowers and stuff. They're just regular people who uh, shift in different, some of them have control over it. Some of them have no control over it all. So it kind of uh, consumes their lives. And so the first book, let's see. But literally, right? Literally it consumes their lives. Early on, there's a, the, the character is thinking about a, a, a former lover, right? Or, or a right, yeah. Died. Right, so this is the first book in the series. Um, yeah. And the character, my main character in the short story, his name is William. And he appears briefly in this book. And then he's one of the main characters in the second book, which I can't find in my book so far. I would hold that up. Um, so yeah, in, in, when he, in his character arc in the novels, he is in love with another shapeshifter who whose life is uh, kind of a, a tragedy and so he is a, kind of her caretaker so in in the short story she is already dead and he is now he has become almost completely feral because he doesn't really like to live among humans so he spends most of his time as a dog or a wolf or something that he every once in a while comes back to human state because he still has family members and he doesn't want to be completely wild and he thinks if he doesn't shift back he will forget what it's like to be human and in this story when he shifts back he finds himself in the middle of a firefight between a thug and his ex-girlfriend and he gets dragged into their troubles and ends up helping her even though he doesn't really trust her and isn't 100 sure he believes her but uh, he feels like it's the right thing to do he is also not a detective but he's involved in helping her figure out this thing that's happened to her and saving her maybe i i like that yeah he starts at the i think in the first paragraph he's just he transforms from a golden setter back into human form or something right right on the first page yeah right um, I, I like your comment you know uh that he he wants he, he wants to remain human and to remain human he has to sort of stay in contact with his family right? i think that's an interesting kind of thing to think about in terms of a lot of these characters, right? The, 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 the sort of night in exile getting isolated and the risks of insanity or becoming a sociopath or becoming hard-hearted, right? That that, that that entails, I think it's an interesting theme. And I've only read a couple of the stories so far because I haven't had time, but that is a theme, you know, what makes you human and how far can you cross the line into maybe anti-human behavior before you are no longer human or a good person. And I mean, that's obviously a, a, a tricky line for people to walk, but I think that's kind of the noir point is that walking that line. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. There's another thing too that, that just sort of came to my mind as we're talking about this. Of all of the stories, I'm trying to think, quite a few of them, our detective character isn't actually a detective, you know, um, mine and Griffin's, he's a bouncer, right? Scott's got a veterinarian. Sh Sharon's is a wild shapeshifter <laughs> who really doesn't have a job. He just kind of does stuff. Um, but one of the things that I was so impressed with, um, with all of these stories is, you know, when we, when we sent out the invite, we asked each of the uh, contributors to, to have a character with some kind of convincing truth-seeking motive. Um, and, and every single one of them came out with that in like totally different ways, but it, it, it comes together so cool in such a cool sort of, you know, synthesis of well, what is the truth and how, how far can you go in seeking the truth? And does it really matter? You know, it, there's truth and there's right and then there's somewhere in between. So, you know, I, that was, I, I was really, really happy with how that all came together in this volume. 
Well, I, I think that seeking the truth plus Sharon's comment about walking the line between the human and inhuman brings us to the darkest story in the book. Seth, I think you are up. Uh, I, uh, it's pretty dark. It's a pretty dark story about it's, a guy in a pretty dark place. As, as dark as you think it is, it's, it was actually darker. Like Larry and Casey had me lighten it up. Okay. Well, tell um, us a bit about your character and uh, maybe so, the seeks and this, a little bit about the story. So the character is a uh, what's his name? Al Alphonse. I think it's I think it's Alphonse. It I, I just want to apologize. I got a tonight. It's ringing in my ear, so I don't know if I'm. My voice sounds louder than I imagined. You sound great. So anyway, he is a uh, first generation cyborg. He was a soldier. Got fucked up. Got can I can I cuss on here? Anyway, I'll try to mind my language. Uh, I'm I'm incredibly vulgar. I'm working on it. Um, he got screwed up. Whatever. He had a you know he's a cyborg, right? Half human, half whatever. Uh, um. But he lives in pain. He's and he's. I think he's. I tried to do the math. I haven't really figured out how old he is, but he's 200, 250 years old, something like that. And it takes place like after the singularity, and the singularity did not go how people expected. The world that he lives in is sort of a combination of Blade Runner and Idiocracy combined. And uh, he is tasked with, like, he spends most of his time in a uh, doped up state, sort of borderline, border, and almost, a, almost in a self-induced self coma. And he gets pulled out of it because he has to find someone. And he has to find someone who is a, a back, anti-technology terrorist. And the antagonist, was someone that he had body was the little girl was the child of the scientist who had morphed him into a cyborg right and he had been her bodyguard when he was you know when she was little and he was a new cyborg or whatever and then they went off he went off to space to put down some rebellions with her dad and while they were gone she she uh she kind of went crazy, right? 50 years, 100 years later, whatever it is. And he, uh, it's just a her, him looking for her to try to bring her back or whatever. And it's a sort of a way for me to comment on politics without getting political a little bit. But I, background, like I came out of a long, sort of uh i don't want to get too much into my personal shit but i came out of a long uh dependency on a prescription uh va pills right hydrocodones opiates and uh to, for me to oh, the past three years i had a very long recovery and a very public recovery unfortunately and i uh to be this clean and clear and sober and to look at the world the normies have created I will never be able to explain how surreal it is. So that's kind of that's kind of where that is. That's kind of what 
And plus, I wanted to write. I got science fiction isn't usually my wheelhouse, so hmm. uh, I, I'm excited to play with a new genre a little bit. And I, I wanted to put some love out there for Texas because Texas doesn't really, <clears throat> especially Dallas, it doesn't really uh, seem to have much of a footprint in the science fiction world that I've seen. So. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, it is dark. It's about a man looking for truth. I won't say he finds happiness at the end, uh, but but uh, I'll let the readers uh, read the story and find out what he does find. Um, so that kind of anti-state activist gives me a little bit of a link to come talk to Bob here for a minute. Uh, so Bob, you've written a, uh, a uh, alternate history. Um, stands out for not having science fiction or fantasy elements in this crowd of stories, you know. Uh, tell us kind of the, the premise of your story and, and what it's about. Well, uh, first thing I'll say is, uh, like Larry said, for the War Fatale anthology, I submitted a kind of a YA romance. So I was a little surprised uh, when uh, Larry and Casey invited me to submit another story for the second war anthology. And I thought, well, I guess they're gonna make me keep trying until I get one right. So I, uh, this time, um, I, at, the, at the time I was working on, and I'm still working on an alternate history series about what the US would and the world would look like if the US had stayed out of World War II. And Casablanca had always been my idea of what a noir story should be. So the story 1957 is a story set in the past where America stayed out of World War II. And it's about a shady expatriate American who runs a nightclub in Berlin that the Nazis like. And he sticks his neck out for nobody until one night a blonde walks into the joint and it turns out that neither he nor the blonde are who either of them thinks they are. And there are airplanes in the story because I like airplanes and there's spy stuff in the story because I was a military intelligence officer during the Cold War. And uh, I guess that's really, that's kind of where, where it is, so. Yeah. Bob, I want to take a moment and let you know, I, I gave an early copy of No Game Tonight, No Game for Nights to my stepmother because she's a she's a big reader. And she opened it up to your story because we put your story first in the volume because it's oh. such a great lead off. And she read the first line was like, that's the best first line I've ever read. So sorry, Larry, I know normally people say that about you, but um, for for my stepmother, it's it's Bob. <laughs> Thanks very much, Casey. Sounds like we found another one of our main contributors. Um, All of the contributors are main contributors, to be clear. Oh, is that how, <laughs> how it is? Um, awesome. Uh, well, uh, Mike, this is almost a semi-random jump here at this point. Uh, Mike Haspel, you you wrote a story with a character that's also features in a novel of yours. Um, and I know you've been having some technical difficulties, so I'm hoping you can hear me and, and we can hear you. I can hear you. I don't know if you can hear me. We can. You said All right, great. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your story. Tell us about this, the premise and the novel. 
Yeah, so it takes place in a world where vampires have, through an event called the reveal, have come out and shown themselves to the world. There are blood substitutes. The the two main brands are uh, Sangri and Hematopia, uh, stuff like that. So, <laughs> and they require a police force that can handle vampires. Uh, because obviously the crimes are different and all that stuff. So in this story, Storm Surge, our uh, detective Alex Romer finds himself on a protection detail for a 14-year-old girl and her mom, and they're trying to figure out why the vampires want her dead. Uh, and he kind of uses them as bait <laughs> to, to bait them out to a compound where he can even the odds because there is something about Alex that most people don't know, and that is he is a 4,500-year-old Egyptian pharaoh who's immortal, goes by the name of Menkara, who is actually one of the son of Khafra, son of Khufu, and built the third pyramid at Giza. And uh, he, can, he has a lot of powers. But the trick is about him is that, uh, and this is not in the story, this is just background information, that when his nemesis, his nemesis woke up first and destroyed his papyrus instruction manual. So he kind of doesn't know what he can do. <laughs> so he he bonds with this girl and they're trying to like keep her alive, obviously. And um, he's actually trying to shape her into a weapon that can be used against the vampires. But her mom doesn't doesn't want any of that. Yeah. Now, now, I think one of the key things you left out in describing the world setup is that it is Florida. Yes, it's in Miami. <laughs> So it's during hurricane Miami. season. Yeah. So it's vampires versus a mummy Miami vice. Uh, yes. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> uh, showdowns with speedboats and, you know, high power rifles and stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a fantastic story. Uh, now, the novel is, is this story happened before the novel? Is that the, the idea? Yeah, the story happens before the novel, but it doesn't, um, it kind of doesn't matter. It's yeah. just if you pay attention to the times and dates uh, that the story takes place at the end of the short story, he, uh, Alex gets a call uh, and it's from Homicide. And the, the book opens two hours later with him arriving at the crime scene. From having got that call. Yeah. Uh, where his his partner he's partnered with a vampire in the novel. Yeah, his partner is a Roman vampire named Marcus. Yeah, so having just come from the showdown with vampires over this little girl, that's kind of a fun uh, uh, nuance to the opening of the book. Uh, in hindsight, yes. Hey, <laughs> hey Mike, uh, I don't think he I don't think he gave the title of the novel yet. Oh, oh yeah. the, the novel is called Graveyard Shift, as appropriate because uh, and this is a fun little thing was. Uh, Alex is powered by the sun god, Ray, by the sun. And that's what gives him all his powers. And of course, if he's hunting vampires, he has to work the graveyard shift where he can't, he can't yeah, have access to the sun. So it's just kind of funny. That's awesome. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. 
Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Warrior 2406. The apartment living room was small and cluttered, with the kind of sad dinginess that comes more from lack of time and materials rather than from lack of interest in housekeeping. Seated at the scarred table in the room's center, Johnny let his eyes drift across the far wall, finding an echo of his own weariness in the faded blue paint there. A map of his own soul, he'd frequently thought of it, with its small cracks and chips echoing the effects of nearly three years of warfare on Johnny's psyche. But it's still standing, he told himself firmly, as he always did at this point in his contemplation. The explosions and sonic booms constrain the surface, but beneath it the wall remains solid. And if a stupid wall can do it, so can I. Like this? A tentative voice asked from beside him. Johnny looked down at the rumpled piece of paper and the lines and numbers the child had written there. Well, the first three are right, he nodded. But the last one should be... I'll get it, Denise interrupted, attacking the geometry problem with renewed vigor. Don't tell me. Johnny smiled, gazing fondly at the girl's tangled red hair and determined frown as she redid her work. Denise was ten years old, the same age that Johnny's sister was now. And though Johnny hadn't heard from his family since arriving on Adirondack, he sometimes imagined that Gwen had grown to be a dark-haired version of the girl now sitting beside him. Certainly Gwen's spunk and common-sense stubbornness were here in abundance. Certainly, too, Denise's ability to treat Johnny as a good friend, despite her parents' quiet reservations over the Cobra's temporary presence in their household, showed the independent streak Johnny had often seen in his sister. But Denise was growing up in a war zone, and no strength of character could get her through that entirely unscathed. So far she'd been lucky. Though crowded into a small apartment with too many people, the simmering guerrilla war outside had otherwise touched her life only indirectly. Given sufficient time, though, that was bound to change, especially if the Cobras overstayed their welcome in this part of Cranach and brought the troughs down on the neighborhood. On the negative side, it gave Johnny one more thing to worry about. On the positive side, it was an extra incentive to do his job right and end the war as quickly as possible. Through the open window came the dull thump of a distant thunderclap. "'What was that?' Denise asked, her pencil pausing on the paper. "'Sonic boom,' Johnny said promptly. He'd cut in his auditory enhancers halfway through the sound and caught the distinctive whine of troughed thrusters beneath the shockwave. Probably a couple of kilometers away. "'Oh!' The pencil resumed its movement. Standing up, Johnny stepped to the window and looked out. The apartment was six stories up, but even so there wasn't much of a view. Cranach was a tall city, forced by the soft ground around it to go up instead of out as most of Adirondack cities had done. Directly across the street was a solid wall of six-story buildings. Beyond them only the tops of Cranach's central city skyrisers were visible. Clicking for image magnification, he scanned what was visible of the sky for the trails of falling space chutes. 
The pulse code message last night from off-planet has sparked a desperate flurry of activity as the underground tried to prepare for their new cobras. Cobras, who, with lousy planning, would be landing virtually in the lap of the troughed buildup going on in and around Cranach. Johnny's jaw tightened at the thought, but there'd been nothing anyone had been able to do about it. Receiving a coded signal that in essence blanketed half a continent was one thing. Signaling back again, even if the courier ship could afford to stick around that long, was a whole lot dicier. Johnny knew a round dozen ways of outsmarting radio, laser, and pulse code direction finders, and each one had worked a maximum of four times before the troughs came up with a way to locate the transmitter anyway. The underground had one method in reserve for emergencies. The Cobra landing had been deemed not to qualify as such. See anything? Denise asked from the table. Johnny shook his head. Blue sky, sky risers, and a little girl who's not doing her homework, he added, turning back to give her a mock glare. Danice grinned, the very childlike expression not touching the more adult seriousness in her eyes. Johnny had often wondered how much she knew of her parents' activities out in Adirondacks shifting and impromptu battlefields. Did she know, for example, that they were at this moment on a hastily thrown-together diversionary raid? He didn't know. But if she didn't need a distraction from what was happening out there, he certainly did. Seating himself beside her again, he gave his mind over as fully as he could to the arcane mysteries of fifth-grade mathematics. It was nearly three hours later before the click of a key in a lock came from the outer door. Johnny, his hands automatically curled into fingertip laser firing position, watched with muted anxiety as the six people filed silently into the apartment, his eyes flicking from faces to bodies as he searched for signs of injuries. The survey, as usual, yielded results both better than his fears and worse than his hopes. On the plus side, all those who'd left the apartment at dawn, two cobras, four civilians, had returned under their own power. On the minus side... He was across the room before Denise's mother was two steps inside the door, taking her unbandaged left arm from her husband's tired-looking grip. What got you? he asked quietly, steering her over to the couch. Horned, Marja Tolan said, her voice heavy with painkillers. Two of the civilians brushed Johnny aside and got to work with the apartment's bulky medical kit. Locked in on the click of her popcorn gun's firing mechanism, we think. Marja's husband, Kem, added tiredly from the table and Johnny's former chair. Fatigued or not, Johnny noted, he'd made it a point immediately to go over and reassure his daughter. Johnny nodded grimly. Popcorn guns had hitherto been remarkably safe weapons to use, as such things went. Their tiny, inertially guided missiles emitted no radar, sonar, or infrared reflection that could be picked up by any of the troughs' myriad detectors and response weapons. The missiles were furthermore blasted inert out of the gun barrels by a solid kick of compressed air, their inboard rockets not firing until they were ten to fifteen meters from the gunner. A lot of the missiles themselves had been destroyed in flight by troughed hornets and laser locks, but until now the aliens hadn't had a way to backtrack to the gunner himself, unless Marja had simply suffered a lucky hit. Johnny looked at Callie Halloran, raised his eyebrows in a question so common now that he didn't even need to vocalize it, and Halloran understood. We won't know for sure until popcorn gunners start dropping en masse, the Cobra said wearily. But it was really too clear a shot to be pure chance. I think we can safely assume popcorn guns are out for the duration. 
For all the good the damn things have done so far, Immel Deutsch growled. Stalking to a window, he stood there facing out, his hands clasped in a rigid parade rest behind his back. The room was suddenly quiet. Stomach churning, Johnny looked back at Halloran. What happened? Cobra casualty, Halloran sighed. One of MacDonald's team, we think. Though visibility was pretty poor, the people who were supposed to be guarding one of the approaches to their position apparently lost it, and about a dozen troughs got inside. We got a warning off, but we're too far away to help. Johnny nodded, feeling an echo of the bitterness Deutsch was almost visibly radiating, of the bitterness he himself had nearly choked on twice since their arrival on Adirondack. Parnofki and Druma Singh, both of their team's own casualties had come about through the same kind of civilian incompetence. It had taken Johnny a long time to get over each of the deaths. Halloran, with marginally less tolerance for frontier people, had taken somewhat longer. Deutsch, born and raised on Adirondack, hadn't gotten over it at all. Any idea of casualties generally? Johnny asked Halloran. Low, I think, except for the Cobra, the other said. Johnny winced at the unspoken implication, more common lately than he liked, that Cobra lives were intrinsically more valuable than those of their underground allies. Of course, we weren't really trying to take that stockpile, so no one had to take any unusual chances. Did the fresh troops make it down okay? No idea. Johnny shook his head. Nothing's come in on the pulse receiver from off-world confirming it. It'd be just like those fridge pushers to put a last-minute hold in the drop without telling us. Johnny shrugged, turned back to the people working on Marge's arm. How's it look? Typical hornet injury, one of them said. Lots of superficial damage, but it'll all heal okay. She's out of action for a while, though. And for that time at least, Denise would have one parent out of the immediate fray. If that mattered. Johnny had already seen far too many uninvolved civilians lying dead in the middle of crossfires. The next few minutes were quiet ones. The two civilians finished with Marja's arm and left, taking the group's small supply of combat equipment with them for concealment. Kem and Danice accompanied Marja to one of the apartment's three bedrooms, ostensibly to put her to bed, but mainly, Johnny suspected, to give the three Cobras some privacy to discuss the operation and plan future strategy before the rest of the apartment's occupants returned home from work. In the first few months, Johnny reflected, they might have done just that. But after three years, most of the words had already been said, most of the plans already discussed, and gestures of hand and eyebrow now sufficed where conversations had once been necessary. For now, the gestures merely indicated fatigue. Tomorrow, Johnny reminded them of the next high-level tactical meeting as they headed for the door and their own crowded apartments. Halloran nodded. Deutsch merely twitched a corner of his lip. And another wonderful day on Adirondack was drawing to a close. If the wall can stand it, Johnny repeated to himself, so can I. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Larry Correa, Casey Izell, Griffin Barber, G. Scott Huggins, Sharon Shin, S.A. Bailey, Robert Butner, Michael Haspel, Chris Kennedy, Rob Howell, and Craig Martell for sitting down with DJ Butler today. Stay tuned next week for part two of their discussion. 
and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. Until then, this is David F. Sharirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.